Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Good to be back into somewhat of a normalcy after being gone for so long. I tell you, we we're in Israel being gone that long. It's, it's hard to get caught up, but starting to feel like I've hit that place, so it's good. Back in the pulpit, uh, all is right in the world. Jesus is on the throne, so nothing to complain about, right? If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn first to the book of Joshua chapter 7. Today's message is going to be the first of a two-part message that I'm going to be doing on a particular um, aspect of the gospel that many of us really tend uh, to have a, a tendency to struggle with. And the reason why we struggle with it is because this is one of those truths that really does just seem too good to be true. But the fact that it is true is precisely what makes the gospel good news. The gospel changes everything. You know, that's one of the, the top statements I hear from people when they um, all of a sudden come to a realization of one of these truths that, that, that something that Jesus has done, what this means, they'll say, man, if that's true, then this changes everything. And it really does. You know, we've seen times how uh, a revelation of what Jesus has done can completely change your whole perspective on something, the perspective or attitude you may have had about something before and you get that revelation and come to an understanding of what the gospel means of what Jesus does in it and it completely changes that, it changes your perspective, your attitude. And so today and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at three words um, that really have a lot to do with each other that um, when you read these words, when you hear each of these, it's either going to produce joy in you or it's going to produce dread depending on your perspective and those three words are judgment punishment and discipline looking at those three words from the perspective or the mindset of an orphan is always going to produce dread and fear but looking at them from a gospel perspective produces joy the first word we're going to look at today is the word judgment Every one of us are going to have to face the judgment of God. We all have a court date set before his judgment seat, before the judgment seat of God Almighty. And that's the picture that the Bible paints, a courtroom scene that involves a judge, a defendant, an accuser, and an advocate. Now, for me to say that, for me to make the statement that every one of us are going to face a day where we stand before the judgment seat of God. That, just hearing that statement should stir something up in you. And like I said, it's either going to stir up dread or it's going to stir up joy. And some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, joy? And nobody's joyful about facing judgment. Some of you may have looked at the title of the message already in the bulletin, and you saw there the title is Judgment, Punishment, and Discipline, and your immediate thought was, oh, no. This doesn't sound very happy at all. And so think for a second and identify just what it is about you personally. What comes to mind when you hear God's judgment? Do you think things like, well, I better get my act together. Or, 
I hope that the good things that I've done in life will outweigh all the bad things I've done when it comes to that time. Is it a feeling of unbridled joy or is it a feeling of, man, I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope for the best? If that's the case, then my hope for you is that by the end of this message, all of that will change and you will see and believe that for those of us who are in Christ, the day of judgment is going to be an absolutely glorious day. I hope your fingers are loose because we're going to be looking at several texts in the Bible. In fact, we're going to follow one uh, thread of God's grace that is going to Uh, be woven through the Old Testament into the Gospels and then into the epistles of the New Testament. But before we begin looking at uh, God's Word, I first want to warn some of you. If you're one of those who believe that being fearful about God's judgment is a good thing, as in it's a good tool to use in order to keep everyone's behavior in check, then I'm going to warn you that this thread we're going to follow will completely unravel your sweater if you pull on it. This will no doubt mess up some good old fear and shame-based theology. We're going to start in the Old Testament with the book of Joshua chapter 7. And here in this story, the Israelites have crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. They miraculously defeated the great walled city of Jericho. The next city they come to is the tiny town of Ai. And in their minds, they're thinking this will be a piece of cake, especially considering what happened at Jericho. But to their great shock, those few inhabitants of Ai completely routed the mighty army of Israel. The story says that because of this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Joshua is absolutely distraught. He tears his clothes. He falls on his face, crying out to God, why did you even bring us over here? We would have been a lot better off if we had just stayed on the other side of the Jordan River. Oh, this is horrible. What are you going to do now? We're going to pick up with what happened next, beginning in verse 10. Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Let's all stand together as we honor God's word today. It says, So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Now, jump down to verse 16. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zarahites, and he brought the family of the Zarahites near by man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are 
concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So they go and they find these things. They take his whole family and then jump down to verse 25. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble to this day. Let's pray. Lord, I'm excited, Lord, about just presenting this word that you have laid on my heart. I had to share with your people and God, I pray these words would just thrill us like none other. Lord, that you would thrill us with your presence and with just a revealing to us of who you are and your heart. God, would you excite us once again about being a Christian, about belonging to you. I just know what that means, God. Holy Spirit, would you come and allow that to happen? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's a couple of things I want to point out in this story. First, notice in those first section of verses that we read, starting in verse 10, how God said that everyone was guilty. In verse 11, he said, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have become accursed. Achan was the only one who disobeyed. He was the only one who took what was forbidden, but God doesn't blame an individual there. He blames the entire nation. All were guilty because of the sin of one man. That sound familiar? It should. In Romans 5, 12, talking about Adam, it says, through one man sin entered the world, so death spread to all men. The story here in Joshua 7 is a picture of a foreshadow of the gospel. Achan is a symbol of Adam in this part of the story. Now, after being in Israel, I realized probably the correct, correct pronunciation of his name is Achan. But I'm sticking with Achan because that's a whole lot easier to say. God tells Joshua to assemble all the people according to their 12 tribes they were to cast lots to see which tribe was chosen, then they cast them again to see which family, then which household, then which individual in that house. And I want you to just imagine being one of those Israelites, if you were standing there at that time, because all they know is that they had been defeated, suffered this humiliating defeat against Ai because... Someone has sinned, and they've all been assembled to find out who it is. I mean, if that's all you knew, can you imagine the fear that you would have had that you might be the one found out about it? Every one of them would have had this great sense of dread, knowing very well that it could be them. After all, there were 613 different laws that they had to keep up with to follow and obey in order to remain in God's favor. There's no way anybody can keep them all. And so every one of them are living with a guilty conscience already. And then Joshua brings them up and says this. So if you're a member of the tribe of Judah, 
your anxiety level just shot way up because the lot falls to your tribe. If you're a member of the Zarahite family, you're now sweating bullets. And probably in your mind, you're just going over confessing every sin you can possibly think that you have committed, even the ones that you might have forgotten about, just trying to cover all your bases. And with each casting of the lots, the fear, the dread, the anxiety would have just gone up exponentially. And then the household of Zabdi is taken, and every member of that household had to be just trembling at the fear of what might possibly come to them, fear of this judgment. Whatever one of those Israelites would have been feeling that day is pretty much the same feeling that a lot of people have when you mention the judgment of God. And why is that? Because we know we're guilty. And we know what we've done. We know the things that we've done a pretty good job of hiding from everybody else. But we know we can't hide it from God. And on judgment day, things are going to be found out. You know, growing up as a kid, going to different churches, and the different denominations that I've been a part of have gone from one end of the spectrum to the other, but there was something that was pretty common in all of them, no matter what denomination it was. I, would, I remember hearing from preachers and these Sunday school teachers and whoever it was teaching saying this, that on the day of judgment, there is going to be this giant TV screen And it's going to play for everybody to see all the things that you have done in life. And God's going to judge you based on what's being played. And that absolutely scared me to death. The basic philosophy there is is taken from some texts in the Bible that have been taken way out of context and misunderstood. But if you have been told that and you believe it, then your attitude about judgment day, thinking about when you get to stand before the judgment seat of God, is pretty much going to be the same that these Israelites had to be feeling that day. But then the final lot was cast, which fell to Achan. Him and his family are immediately taken out and killed. And the death of one man results in the pardon of everyone else. God originally said that everybody was guilty, but only one man had to pay. That sound familiar? Romans 5, 18 and 19, be up on the screen, says this. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men... Even so, through one act of righteousness, there results a justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, talking about Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Just like in the story, all of mankind was considered guilty because of the sin of Adam. But it took only one man also from the tribe of Judah, you catch that? Jesus Christ, whose death bought forgiveness for all who believe. Judgment fell on Achan. The sentence was carried out, and the rest of the people no longer had any reason to fear the judgment anymore. And the same is true for all who were in Christ. Same is true for all who are in Christ. Now, this 
thread of grace here is going to connect next to the gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn over there, John, the gospel of John chapter 5. Here in John 5, the Jews are really starting to get riled up about some of the things that Jesus was saying, some of the things that he was doing. Um, before, right before this text we're about to read here is when Jesus heals the lame man that was laying by the pool of Bethesda, which we actually got to stand next to when we were over in Israel. The water's not there anymore and things have grown over, but you can see where the pool of Bethesda actually was. Jesus told the man to pick up his pallet and walk, which he did, and everyone threw a fit about it because this was the Sabbath. You're forbidden to work on the Sabbath, and they considered carrying your pallet work. And so they got all riled up that Jesus had commanded this man to work on the Sabbath, even though he had been miraculously healed. Verse 18 says that they were seeking to kill Jesus, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was also referring to God as his father and making himself equal to God. Now, Jesus' response to this is not very diplomatic at all, and I, I love it. He responds in the most direct, the most confrontational way he could have. I mean, he doubles down on it. He wasn't like, no, no, you misunderstand me. Let me explain it to you in a way that, that won't make you so mad. Nope, here's what he said, starting in verse 19 of John 5. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, talking about spiritual life, salvation, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You're one of those who think it doesn't really matter what religion you follow because eventually they're all going to lead to God in the end. Well, Jesus makes it blatantly clear right there in verse 23 that that is not the case. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. When we were over in Israel, we saw a lot of Orthodox Jews I'm telling you, they had more dedication, more devotion, more commitment in their little pinky finger than most Christians have in their entire body. They were very sincere in their efforts to honor God. And one day, a few of us were sitting around talking about this and how in our minds, it would just naturally seem like they should get credit for some of that, some way. But the problem is they reject Jesus as the Messiah. They don't honor the Son. They reject the Son. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And so all that zeal, all that dedication at the end of the day means absolutely nothing. It's sad. 
Now pay attention to what Jesus says next because this is huge. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, now watch, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Do you hear that? Does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, he said something pretty interesting back there in verse 22 when he said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. What does that mean? What it essentially means, the first point in your notes there, that when it comes time for judgment, everyone's guilt or innocence will be based solely on Jesus and nothing else. It'll be based solely on Jesus and nothing else. It will not be based on whether the good things that you did in life will outweigh the bad things that you did. It will not be determined by how sincere you were, how committed you were, how successful you were, how religious you were. It won't be based on what church you belong to or what family you came from or how good you were at avoiding temptation in life. It will be determined solely on your relationship with Jesus. And nothing else. Well, what kind of relationship? I mean, just like a casual one or, or something stronger? Well, he pretty much tells us there in verse 23 when he said, Whoever does not honor the Son doesn't honor the Father. You see, some might read that and think, Well, I honor him. I honor him by going to church every Sunday. I honor him by giving of my money, by volunteering of my time. I honor God with the scriptures and the cute little Christian sayings that I post all over social media. No, the Greek word used here for honor is the word temao, which means to assign value to. To temao the son means that you value Jesus above all else. It means he's not just an accessory to your life that you add to every now and then. He's not just someone that you turn to when you get into trouble. He's not someone that you just give your attention to just on Sundays when you come to church. He is what you find most valuable because all of your hope is tied to him. Those who tamao the son do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. The reason we don't come into judgment is because what you would be found guilty of has already been judged. It's already been judged. When was that? On the cross. It was there that God placed the guilt of all your sin, past, present, and future. All of your sin on Jesus, he judged it and he carried out the sentence of death. I said earlier that that heavenly courtroom is going to include a judge, a defendant, an accuser, an advocate. God the Father is the judge, we are the defendant. Satan is the accuser and Jesus is our advocate. He stands before the Father declaring our innocence that he bought silencing the accusations of Satan. Look at this, Romans 8, 33 and 34 says this, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Meaning he stands there before the Father 
proving our innocence, not by displaying all the good things that we've done in life, but by displaying the holes in his hands and his feet. Jesus says, Father, this one is innocent, not because of anything that they've done, but all because of what I have done in their behalf. The reason why we tend to struggle, though, with the thought of God's judgment is because, like I said, we know us and the things we've done. We know the thoughts that we've entertained and the wickedness of our own heart. We know that we deserve the second word in the title of this sermon. We deserve to be punished for those things. That's what causes that feeling of dread when we think about judgment. We assume naturally that if we are judged rightly, we're going to be punished rightly but here's the deal next point in the notes under the new covenant which jesus inaugurated with his blood which you and i and i are now in it is in effect now under the new covenant god no longer deals with his people through punishment now how can i say that god no longer deals with his people through punishment because jesus took all the punishment that you could ever deserve. Took it all. That's what just sounds too good to be true. That is precisely the definition of grace. Getting what you don't deserve. Now from the gospel of John. We're going to follow this thread to the epistle of John. So turn to 1 John chapter 4. You think I've lost my mind, just wait till you read this. <laughs> this is going to tie all this together, the judgment and the punishment. First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, says this, By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence in the day of judgment. Not fear, not anxiety, not dread, but be confident in the day of judgment. How can we be confident on the day of judgment? Because the next line, which I've mentioned so many times before, one of my favorite, one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible. Confident on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. As Jesus is, as he is holy, as he is perfect, as he is uh, innocent, as he is accepted and loved and victorious, as he is, so also are we. And notice, he gets specific about this. This is not when you get to heaven someday, you're eventually going to be that. No, this is, we are as he is in this world. This is how God sees us now. Despite our failures, despite the weakness of our flesh, God looks at us, those who are in Christ, the way he looks at his own son. Man, that's good. Now look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now listen, because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love there's no reason to fear because there's no punishment because jesus took it all 
Simply put, there's no reason for a Christian to fear the day of judgment because your sin has already been judged on the cross. There is no reason for a Christian to fear being punished anymore because Jesus took all the punishment you deserve. It means that if you are fearful of God's punishment, are fearful of his judgment, then you don't understand his love. Now, I got to say that there's a lot of folks out there that have a problem with this. They don't want it preached. They don't think it should be preached because they're afraid that some might take this as a license to just live however they want to. And the truth is, I can't argue with that. Some might. Licentiousness is a sin mentioned in the New Testament that says that those who do it are not a part of God's kingdom. But the fact that some may take grace as a license to sin is absolutely no reason to shy away from grace, to not preach it. The truth is, there's a risk in someone taking any biblical truth and twisting it to fit their own selfish and wicked desires. I have no control over that. But what I do know is that the grace of God given through Jesus is so good that it is well worth that risk. Because for those who have ears to hear, those who have ears to hear, it'll lead them into more freedom than they ever thought possible. It'll change everything. It'll break that bondage of fear. It'll silence the accusations of the accuser. It'll increase our love for God to levels that we never thought possible. It'll make us more appreciative of what Jesus has done. While I was preparing this message this week, somebody sent me, they texted me a quote that when I read it, I nearly fell over just because of the timing of it. I love how God does things like this. This person had absolutely no idea what I was even thinking about preaching today, didn't know what I was studying, and they randomly just sent me this quote by John Bunyan, who wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress way back in the 1600s, which is an allegory of the grace of God. And the quote I thought was so good and so fitting for this message, I included it as a last point in your notes there in the bulletin, simply says this. If people really see that Christ has removed the fear of punishment from them by taking it onto himself, they won't do whatever they want. They'll do whatever he wants. If they really see it and understand what it means, they won't do what they want. They'll do what he wants. And I know that is so true because I have experienced that. In my own life. I'm telling you, there was a time in my life where I tried so hard to be good out of the fear of being punished. I'm here to tell you that is not a very fun way to live at all. Because it's really hard to be good when you know that you're bad. That all changed when I began having a a better understanding of God's grace And the good that I do now is done out of a want to instead of a have to. It's just a natural outflow, the expression of the love I have for him, for what he has done for me that I so don't deserve. Yes, there is going to be a day 
of judgment. But for those who are in Christ, it is going to be a glorious day to us. A day we can look forward to and anticipate with joy, not dread with fear. For those who are not in Christ, for those who value their own lives above all else, their own ways of doing life above all else, that day will not be so glorious. See, the Bible isn't shy at all about the reality of hell any more than it is about the reality of grace. And to announce a message of grace is not to say that God doesn't care about sin. If you want to know how serious he is about sin, all you have to do is look at the cross. Announcement of grace is simply to announce the good news of salvation to anyone who wants it. There's many people who don't want it. There's many who don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And in the end, God's going to give everybody exactly what they want for eternity. J.I. Packer said it like this. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. I'm telling you right now, the worship of self does not lead to an eternity of carnal pleasure. It leads to an eternity of what Jesus describes as weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is an alternative. It's only found in Jesus. There is no other way. I'm going to close with something that really has to be addressed when it comes to punishment. So Jesus took all the punishment we deserve, which means there's none left for us. How then do you explain all the bad things that happen to people? Because some question, if Jesus took all my punishment, then why in the world is this happening to me? The rational assumption is that they've done something bad. God is punishing them. They must have done something to deserve this. In their mind, there can really be no other explanation. And I'm, I get it. There are some things that are so bad, we just can't see how they can be defined as anything other than punishment. Because we know, no way can this be something that's good. It's not punishment. But it is something that we can trust God with. It is something that gives us hope in the middle of those bad times when they come. That gives us a firm foundation to stand on when hard times come and things seem so shaky and unstable. Having a correct understanding of it, a gospel understanding, will change your whole perspective on life itself, will change your whole perspective on God and what he is like. And it is so good. That's what we're going to look at next week. Let's pray.
Lord, to say that I thank you for your grace just seems so inadequate. Lord, I don't even have the capacity for my gratitude to match just the bigness of your grace and your love, your mercy and what you have done through your son. It's too big for us to grasp with our own finite minds. We need the Holy Spirit to even be able to do that. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and those who have never really had an understanding of just the immensity of the grace of God, I pray that that would happen this morning. For those who have been under so much condemnation, just feeling so guilty all the time because they are believing the accusations of the enemy, Lord, I pray that you would set them free from those lies right now. Lord, for those in here who have been living for self, who have just been rejecting you time after time, Lord, I pray today is the day they see your truth for what it is. Your mercy, draw them to you. Would come in repentance, knowing that Jesus is their only hope. God, we need a reminder of this every day. We be able to live according to who we are in you, not according to who others say we are. Not according to the labels that other put on others put on us. Not according to the failures that we believe we carry, that we believe we are. Lord, would you allow a revelation of your grace just to wash all that away? Lord, I sense your presence here in a strong way. I know that you're setting people free even right now. Lord, I know that you're breaking chains. I know that you're lifting burdens. The Holy Spirit, would you just come and let the Father's will be done. God, you're so good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm going to spend a few moments to just really, really allow whatever God is, is saying to just kind of sink in.